Good afternoon. Welcome to the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell, uh, publisher and founder of Healthy Indoors Magazine. Today's show is one we've been uh, thinking about for a long time. We're really excited to uh, do it. Uh, we're going to take <laughs> we're going to take on some topics that I think many people in the industry shy away from. Uh, not our guests, though. However, so our first guest has a long-standing commitment to the study of indoor environments and the dynamic interaction between occupants, contaminant sources, and building materials and systems. He is a certified industrial hygienist and a professional engineer and president of Indoor Environmental Engineering an IAQ consulting firm based in San Francisco, California. Please welcome Bud Offerman. Hey. How are you, Bud? Hey, very good. Please come and Our next guest is currently a professor and researcher in the Environmental Science and Engineering Department, uh, Department's Gill, I'm going to mispronounce this, Gilling School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He was also president of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate from 2014 through 2016 and was named a fellow in 2011. Please welcome Dr. Glenn Morrison. Hey. Hey, hey. And last but not least, you know, um, finally, since it's April 15th, we have a representative from IRS, not the IRS, but Insurance uh -huh. Restoration Specialist and their Infection Control Technologies Division. He has over 20 years of professional experience in handling event-driven hazardous materials and biological response actions for industrial, commercial, and residential properties. He currently sits on the board of directors as the president of the American Biorecovery Association. Please welcome Thomas Licker. Hey, How are you? So, so every everybody, uh, great, great to see you guys here today. Um, we're gonna. It's an interesting topic. Would you Would you not agree? Um, both sure. uh, several years ago, um, Glenn authored an editorial piece in Indoor Air that uh, raised a lot of questions about pseudoscience and 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 some snake oil issues, and more recently. Uh, Bud uh, authored a paper that he put out last uh, fall about the uh, snake oil uh, getting into the COVID-19 market. Um, so, you know, with, with that in mind, um, do, you, do you all feel that there's a big issue in this industry? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I got to say this. Um, the reason I wrote that piece was, you know, the kids, right? The schools, the teachers, and 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 to be sold devices that um, um, really don't maybe do much or maybe actually do harm uh, is really a disgrace. And uh, so I need to get the message out. And I'm glad you had us on here, Bob, to help us get this message out. Um, you, uh, I just wanted to share this with you. This was an open letter by Marwa Zatari. She just put it out. I'm going to send it to you, Bob. I don't know if you put stuff up on your website. We do. After, after the show, um, we'll have it up on the website um, post-show, post so it'll be available. But this is an open letter, kind of like Lydia Morosca did on small airborne aerosols of SARS-CoV-2. It's an open letter signed by a bunch of very distinguished uh, scientists, and it's about open letter to address the use of electronic air cleaning equipment in buildings. And say the, uh, the least, you know, they're, they're not recommending these devices stay with the tried and true HEPA filters and stuff like that. So I just wanted to get that in. I mean, I mean, that, that does raise an interesting prospect here, you know, because it's, you know, the question that we put in that we posed for today's show is, you know, is the problem snake oil products or is the problem snake oil salesmen and uh, you know i would question or is it is it a combination of both you know that we're that we're dealing with here and that, not just for covid but in general in the iq industry we've had you know years and years we all all of us have had these conversations right at conferences and amongst you know amongst all, all the people in the industry oh you know th things are things are crazy things shouldn't be done this way um but have we have we really offered any uh, any resolution to that? You know? Yeah, I, I don't think that what I see is in the industry from a contractor's point of view is that I get hit over the head with every type of 
gadget technology. Uh, this is going to be the latest and greatest thing. We tried this with NASA. I hear all these marketing tips that are out there. And to the naive that don't research the product thoroughly before they incorporate it into their scopes of work, you really, you know, some of this stuff, not even that, I think it's, I think this is salesman out there that really truly believe in this product because they're naive to a lot of things. Um, they're, and a lot of times they're not scientists themselves or they don't, they don't challenge the efficacy criteria or the, the science behind the product. They take it as face value and they're out there trying to push it because let's face it, everybody's trying to make money on something out there. And in times like COVID or when you have a pandemic, we see it time and time again, or even, you know, we had the enterovirus D68 not too long ago. You see these people come out of the woodwork, um, whether it be the manufacturers and, and we all know this, or the contractors that are promising X, Y, Z and we'll sterilize your property. We, we, we've seen, we'll fog your house for 150 bucks on a, side, on a sign on the side of the road. So, you know, how do we curtail that as an industry and how do we bring science into the mechanisms of contracting work or, you know, back into the relationship with the manufacturer? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in that, what you're saying there, Tom. Oh, tell me about it. I mean, you know what, and, and you raised, you touched on the issue of, uh, you know, many, I think many practitioners and maybe consultants, you know, are unwittingly you know, providing solutions or purported solutions that they believe will work. You know, it's, it's, I think part of the, the solutions that may fall under the snake oil category are, you know, those that are not voluntarily, you know, selling snake oil. They actually think they're providing a good service. And, yeah. and so, yeah, so a better metaphor than maybe the snake oil salesman, although I like that one. I thought that was a good hook for uh, my opinion piece. But uh, another one is the emperor has no clothes. And so if you know that little child's uh, story, uh, the uh, some weavers weave uh, some invisible clothes to the, uh, to the, uh, for the, the emperor, right? And everyone around him that are kind of fawning up to him, they're like, oh yeah, those are the most beautiful clothes. So like you're saying, you, uh, even the sales reps um, for these products, uh, they might actually believe it works and everything. And, and in the emperor's uh, has no clothes uh, fable, it was a young child that like said, wait a minute, he's got no clothes on. <laughs> so, yeah. what, what's, what's interesting um, is, I, I don't think anything has changed. I mean, we've been in the industry a long time, uh, you know, for me since the mid mid eighties, but I know you're, you know, in the same time frame, Thomas, I'm not really sure how long you've been there, but the reality is we've been having this discussion since back in the, you know, the late eighties, early nineties. And it seems like we're still having this conversation here in 2021, which is crazy. But Glenn, I want to direct a question to you. Um, your 1999 dissertation was on ozone, right? And in the 1990s, there's a lot of controversy around ozone and the company Alpine Air and its founder, Bill Converse. And it seems like uh, a lot of people came out to fight snake oil products back in the 1990s. It, but you know, what's, what's happened since then? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there was sort of a, 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 a convergence of questions surrounding um, indoor ozone um, and some, some chemistry that was going on back then that actually uh, made some waves. Um, in particular, just, just the fact that some of these products were generating ozone at levels indoors that were significantly above um, outdoor standards was enough to you know, give everybody pause, and it was a it was a a bit of a um, I don't know. It, it was it was a more public battle in the sense that there were there were lawsuits, and um, it sort of pushed back on that question. And so ozone, if you you know, getting ozone generated, selling something as an ozone generator to improve indoor air quality is much less common now. I think it's, they use different terms, of course, they use ion generators or something else, right? Um, that may, as a, <clears throat> as a uh, side um, you know, effect, generate ozone. But I don't know, I, I'd say that there's just as much um, concern at the academic scale 
that there's these products out there, but there's also a bit of um, distance because as academics look at a product, they say, well, this can't work. I don't understand why this is even being sold and kind of stop there. It's not a, it, there, it's not really the, the next level of, you know, the next thing we do, that's not what we do unless we specifically are researching those devices. Um, but there are a lot of really good people in academia that, that have come out about that. And that's uh, Bud's mention of um, Marwa's uh, recent paper is great. And you know, Bud's paper and um, there's several others out there that are pushing right now because of the pandemic um, I mean, I could go on and on, but I, I'd say I don't know why it's a little different now. Why there's this interval of some quiet? Yeah, it's. It, yeah, I mean, what's you know of late, you know, there's a lot of rumbling in the industry about uh, you know pro and pro and con bipolar ionization. You know, there, and not just to pick on that. You know, in schools buying them, obviously that's you know part of that paper that you just mentioned. Um, you know, do these products work? I mean, are are they are they just being sold to the wrong markets? Or I mean, or is there an is there an installation problem or an application problem? Like sometimes with UV, UVC very effective. You know, radiating a surface, but maybe on a 500 foot per minute airstream, not so effective. Who wants to? Yeah, who wants, to jump, who wants to jump on that? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just say that, that, you know, it's something that Bud and I have talked about, but in general, products that add something to air are bad. I mean, I shouldn't say are necessarily bad or, or should be of concern. You always want to take things out of air. That's, that's one clear, simple way of looking at things. And so if you're adding ions, if you're adding ozone, if you're acting uh, uh, active oxygen, adding fragrance, any of these things, has consequences and you, sh you shouldn't ever add. So do ionizers work? Ionizers can work. So there's a, a thread of truth to that, right? So that you ionize, you, you generate ions, they attach to particles, the particles then are more easily removed by filtration or other means. Yes, yeah. that can work. Yeah, and that's right. Glenn's entirely right. Um, uh, I was fortunate enough when I was a scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory to be able to test uh, some ionizers back in the early days. We're talking the 80s now. And um, yeah, uh, ionizers can charge particles and it can increase deposition onto filters, but also onto what else? Everything else. Exactly. The walls, uh, your skin, your respiratory tract, mm -hmm. all these things. And I, I gotta just affirm uh, or, or, or chime in with what Glenn said. These additive devices, whatever you're adding, ions, ozone, uh, people are spraying um, hydrogen peroxide in the air. No, these, that's a very high bar to prove, like from a precautionary principle, that there's no harm being done, right? It's not simply saying, putting a, a device in a chamber and showing that it removes some particles because you're adding something. So besides removing particles, you know, what are your, what are you creating and stuff like that? So at any rate, Glenn, continue. <laughs> well, I know that's, that's all I was going to say is that yes, they work. However, they don't work that well when they're operating at a safe level, not generating much ozone. And uh, from what we can tell from the existing actual, you know, decent studies. Um, and there's no reason to go to something like that when you already have perfectly um, useful alternatives out there that are well vetted, have been around forever. I, I I'd like to say I I don't I, I'm going to speculate something. Right? One thing you have snake oil, right? So we, we there's companies that are going to try to sell things because they want to set themselves apart and sell something. But I think they work in this case, especially during the pandemic, because you have an, a a very unusual and very dangerous new threat, and so. How do you deal with that? Well, you put in a very unusual new technology and that sets better with people, I think, than using, oh, we have tried and true technology that should take care of that. That's really a new threat. But that's a hypothesis. I mean, that, that's that same argument could be made for, uh, you know, why people were reluctant to wear masks or, you know, getting misinformation on that, too. You yeah. know, just and that, that's pretty tried and true technology, too. Right. 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 Uh. The simplest approach, you know, the simplest behavioral approaches are the most effective approaches. Right you know, but you mentioned on chamber studies, too, that, that that's that's the other problem, I think, is, you know, 
things in a controlled chamber study, any, any type of research, right? In a controlled environment, you know, you can, you control the amount of variables and, and you can, you can get results that are not necessarily replicatable in the field, right? Yeah. You want, so you want to know what the cheat list is? You want to cheat? <laughs> um, uh, take a, uh, an air cleaner and put it in a very small box and yeah. watch how fast the particles go. Take uh, an ionizer and put it an inch away from a Petri dish with bacteria in it for a long period of time. Um, yeah, all, all these things are kind of cheats. And, you know, where is the Federal Trade Commission? All right, I get it. The last administration probably wasn't, uh, it's, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but where are they now? Um, I think uh, they need to get on, the, on, on board here. And also the there's a lot of appropriation of uh, of couple organizations. One is the FDA, and the FDA had, had had back in March, so right at the start of pandemic, came out with like an emergency guideline approval of disinfecting equip disinfection equipment for surfaces or air, and it simply said you had to show a four log reduction. That's it. So again. You can take out an air cleaner, put it in a very small box, run it for like a week if you want, whatever. You just So it was probably rushed, but um, a lot of people then appropriate that and say, yes, our device is FDA approved. So that's bad. And then as Glenn was pointing out, the ozone. So the UL, uh, the California Air Resources Board and EPA all have these you know, test methods and regulations for ozone. But it sounds a lot better if you don't, you don't say, we don't make ozone or whatever. You just simply say, we're approved by EPA. Yeah. Well, yeah, that sounds a lot better. And you mentioned the FTC. It's like, was the FTC ever that effective? I mean, we go back to the 90s now, to the days yeah. of, you know, the ozone machines all over the place. And, you know, you know that one company in particular got, you know, got fined and cited, and they were right back under a different uh, brand name you know, not long after selling the same darn product to the industry, right? Yeah, well, the reason I bring it up is because when I was a scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, we were studying radon progeny, right? The decay products of radon. And we're looking at air cleaning devices, how they, how well they worked on that. And in the course of that work, we found out a lot of these little air cleaning devices really didn't do anything. They were basically, as Glenn put it, fragrance dispensers. They had a citrus pad on them or something. And the Federal Trade Commission did step in. I got hired as a consultant for them. And um, so there was some action there. And the good thing that came out of it was the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers said, hmm, maybe we should hire Offerman here. He's working with the Federal Trade Commission that's going to regulate us. Maybe we should regulate ourselves, in which they did. So I helped them come up with that AHAM AC1 chamber test, which was really uh, – pioneered by um, um, a, 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 a professor at uh, the university. I'm going to get his name because I did it on the other show. Ken Whitby. Thank you, Ken Whitby, for showing how you can test the efficacy of an air cleaner, which doesn't maybe have a defined in and out. You can put it in a chamber with it, test the decay of the, of the particles without the device on, test it with the device on, and you get the clean air delivery rate. So um, we're going to move, I, you know, I think there's uh, the Federal Trade Commission is going to have their attention brought to this. Well, what's yet to remain is to see what enforcement will happen. I, a lot of these claims are a little on the gray area. Yes. Uh, they, they use the word 99.9% a lot. But I think how we normally do this with the FTC is with focus groups in that. And if your advertisements tell the focus group, you know, hey, you know, I don't need a mask. I don't need uh, uh, social distancing. I just have to put this thing in 99% out of the way. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission is not gonna, or shouldn't uh, stand for that. And, you know, they should be, um, you know, reeled in then. So anyway. I mean, ho hopefully that will be the case. Uh, I, I want to remind our uh, virtual studio audience, and we have a large one here today, um, that we will be going into a Q&A mode in about uh, 
nine minutes at uh, the uh, 1.30 uh, Eastern mark. Um, I would ask that you would uh, post your questions uh, up in the uh, chat box for us. Uh, our moderator is Susan Valenti, the editor of Healthy Indoors Magazine. Uh, she'll be, you can chat back and forth with her and she'll queue up the questions that we can get on air today. I know we're going to be limited because we have a half hour window, uh, but we're also planning on doing a, an overtime. We'll uh, end the show uh, officially at 2 p.m., but we're going to do a little bit of an overtime segment uh, with the show today. Um, so that, that should be good. This is, I, I believe the Q&A is going to get great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's challenging though, because, because again, we have, and the three of you are three guests here today. You all, you represent different sectors, but obviously you've been a researcher too, but you know, I, I'm viewing you as a consultant at this juncture. Um, Glenn, obviously, uh, uh, in an academia and a researcher and Tom, you're a practitioner, you're out in the field. Um, and so it's three different perspectives and how we're looking at things. Um, but what what's a consumer to do you know because where is the consumer getting their information is that research work that people like you glenn are doing getting distilled down to the practitioner level and even more importantly into a form that general consumers can understand i i'd say that you know the broad right now what's being generated in research isn't getting distilled to the practitioner because it's not the time it takes you know time for the research to sort of come together and, and ultimately provide good recommendations that are consistent. Um, but that said, a lot of the work that was done by uh, Bud and others in the 80s and 90s are definitely part of the recommendations that we see coming out of different um, sectors, ASHRAE or whatever. So it does happen, it just happens slowly. And a lot of what gets done isn't really necessary. So for example, a lot of what I do is chemistry. I, we don't really need to have the details of all of that chemistry um, in the lap of a practitioner, but what we should have is some way of translating what that chemistry means to the practitioner. And that's hard because we don't know. It's very complicated. We don't know what the toxicity of the impacts of one thing or another. We know some, but we don't know enough to be able to make really strong recommendations other than the quite simple ones, which are don't add reactive species into indoor environments. Don't encourage chemistry. You know, that's something we can say. But a lot of the technology that's, you know, that's being, uh, you know, offered in the industry, you know, to consumers, right, that's coming from the ind indoor air quality uh, yeah. industry, you know, do just that, right? It, it is. I, I, it's, a, it's a bad analogy, but uh, it's like, you know, you've got a parking lot full of old cars, you want to get rid of them. Um, you can either go in there with a, a tow truck and pull one out at a time, and that's filtration. Or you can go in there with a hand grenade and throw it around for a while, and that's adding OH radicals. So what you now have is a, a parking lot full of shrapnel. So it's just not a good idea to induce chemistry um, or add any kind of extra chemistry into indoor environments because you end up with indiscriminate chemistry making things that you don't want. Yeah, sure, exactly. Bob, uh, I think that was a real good question. So why are people buying these? Why are the school districts, which is my real concern, the kids, the teachers, uh, how are they getting hooked into this, uh, these um, um, devices? And, and I get it in a way. They're under a lot of pressure to get back to school. And well, well, what so, I see too is, is there's a perception show going on too, is that right. you know, they're, not, they're under a lot of pressure, but they're under a lot of pressure because the parents are saying, how come you haven't had a third-party contract or clean this, what have you? So from a practitioner's point of view, there's, uh, we're getting a, a, there was an onslaught of business coming to, to us, whether the practitioners acted in a practical and in scientific or ethical manner or not, it, it, it you know, the, the business was, we need to get this done. And, and if, if you don't want to do it, we'll hire somebody else to do it and somebody else will do it um, or ins install those types of uh, filtration units give me what I want. Um, and it's, it's, uh, and it's tough. So, yeah, so uh, yeah you're you know. right. So the message is getting out, Bob. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, uh, academia papers aren't going to do it. Uh, yeah. uh Marwa's, uh, um, open letter, which is going to school districts. That'll help. We just had one in, uh, this is the Sacramento B an article. Sacramento Unified School District spent $6.2 million on a, a UV PCO device that really didn't do that much. 
And um, I got reached out by a, to, by a parent of the, in the school district and was also a reporter and at Kaiser Health News. And so I, I drilled down into their data, showed that it didn't do much. And thank goodness that $6.2 million contract got, got canceled. Yeah. And that $6.2 million can now go to stuff that can really make an impact, right? Uh, regular HEPA uh, portable yeah. filters, air filters, MERV 13 filters, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, that's the problem. But the, the American Recovery Act, by nature, right, is kind of speeding up the process and forcing schools to make, you know, perhaps knee-jerk reactions for these things, correct? Right. So, so this message... It's got to get out to the school board. It's got to be a one pager. Marwa's letter is a little long, but you need a one pager to the school districts, but then to the funding people, the feds. And then also, and we have $2 billion here in California, AB 841 to give schools money. Well, let's get it on the record that the money's not going to unproven te- air cleaning technology. It's only going to proven, you know, trusted technology that's either rated by ASHRAE MERV or uh, AHEM CADR ratings. I mean, that's it. I mean, but herein lies the dilemma that the directive information really, you know, you know, you mentioned FTC and, uh, you know, really, um, I mean, the CDC, you know, EPA, everybody, you know, all, all these cognizant authorities and, re- you know, regular regulative authorities, um, have somewhat almost been missing in action on some of the recommendation stuff, right? I mean, especially for schools, right? It's a difficult situation for them to be able to, uh, you know, so, where, where are they getting the info from? You know, like it's, it's a very I, difficult I saw in the commentary, situation. somebody's asking, you know, well, what, what shouldn't the school board do their due diligence from where? Yeah, I, they, they, they cannot, they cannot. I've reached down and drilled in. How did this decision make? How, how did this decision uh, happen? And they're just be, they're under one, a lot of pressure to, to put another layer of protection on. And then, so they're ripe for the cell. And then the cell comes, like, you know, uh, put in these exactly. ionizers or whatever. So, but, you know, ideally they would reach out to some consultants like uh, myself or other people for some advice. Uh, but it's hard for the school districts to do it. They're really it's, it's tough. It's tough if there isn't a single, you know, or some single, you know, cognizant authorities they can lean on to. Tom, you, you had a point? Yeah, I mean, just to, to uh, reiterate, there was a company out of Texas that uh, uh, did a disinfection of the whole school district and offered a product that had over uh, 90 days, said they had 90 days of efficacy uh, for the said virus uh, when the product that they applied has zero efficacy for viruses. Hmm. Um, it's an antimicrobial, but it's an antimicrobial for algae uh, fungus and, uh, and those are organosilanes. And we all know we're feeling, if you're familiar with the chemical, um, it's privately labeled by, you know, with a, with a whole bunch of different, uh, manufacturers or said manufacturers that borrow the same EPA registration. So we have that fraud going on out there. Uh, and even people that are claiming, uh, long-term efficacy of, of these types of products for viruses is, is, it's it's borderline fraud. Well, um, long-term efficacy, you know, again, it's for for, for microbiologicals, right? There there typically has to be some form of toxicity, or right. you know, I, I know there's some that, that that claim that they do a, a static charge and break cell walls and that sort of thing. And yeah, that's the bio, that's the uh, organosilane. Right? Yeah, and again, you know, so, some of those products I think are. The, the, I think the problem with general consumers is they think in terms of bacteria, uh, fungi, and viruses all is the same, you know, like right. they're, they're germs, exactly. you know, they, you know they, and, and they classify everything underneath one layer. Yeah. But the other thing is that the, the, the SARS-CoV-2, that's just because that's big to talk about now, that sure. variant's really small, you yeah. know, and it's in a respiratory droplet, which might be pretty small, it might be three, four, five microns, but the virions are much, much smaller. So when they come out and then they dry almost instantly, you're left with salts and uh, proteins and and um, um, in, you know, encasing this uh, these virions. So they don't like the, the most of the virions don't have contact with whatever you put in the air, ions, hydroxyl radicals, uh, whatever. So that's another pro- problem with this. A HEPA filter. You know, which we'll is take it up. And, and, and I think, Glenn, 
you mentioned, we talked yesterday, and you mentioned that there might be some psychological appeal to killing the virus, yeah. just catching it. Yeah, right? I, I think so. I think that, I mean, this is all, all of this gets tied up ultimately in psychology. But what, what is snake oil, right? You sell because people, um, they, 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 you, you rely on the psychology of, of uh, people's need for something, you know, fear of something. In this case, um, destroying the virus is a lot more appealing than just capturing it and having it sitting there on a filter in your child's school in an HVAC system until the filter gets replaced. You know, that, right. that is a little bit hard. It's hard to, to explain why that is better, you know, yeah. to somebody. The only, you, the only thing we with, with, with HEPA filters that put UV in, you're like, well, what's the point, right? You already caught it. What yeah. do you have to kill it for? The only thing I could come up with with a, a client that was selling UV devices was, well, maybe uh, for the person that changes the filter out, <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, you, now you've, you know, you've irradiate, you know, you're really not supposed to irradiate filter media uh, with UV you can, light you can anyway. Potentially break it down. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that was just a, a brainstorm of people trying to find a home for UV back, sure. you know, years ago where it, um, most of the patent rights have been sold off for water. And then can we do something in air with, you know, UV? Then the UV PCO devices came out and so we're at the point um, we're, we're slightly past that the midpoint here uh, today. Today's going to be flying on us. So we're going to ask that the, uh, the studio audience turn on your cameras. Now um, we'll, we'll, we'll get the whole Brady bunch view going and uh, Kevin Hunter, you're going to be our first live question. So make sure you get your camera on and uh, we'll get you unmuted. So you'll be able to uh, speak to us. All right. Where is All right, Ke oh. Kevin, you're up. Uh yeah, What's your so, question? Um, yeah, so I had a question about uh, making modifications to HVAC systems and if you would recommend, you know, over, over complete system overhaul or any ERV or HRV systems um, for, yeah, providing fresh air ventilation. Well, if, if you're in my climate zone in California, ERV, HRV doesn't really um, make a lot of sense because it's not such a hot or cold climate, but in, in other places, I mean, it's just a, it's an energy saving way of doing ventilation, right? But mm -hmm. yeah, we're big on ventilation, big on MERV 13 filters, yep. um, big on portable filters with HEPA, not so big on electrostatics, ionizers mm -hmm. and yeah. yeah. What about, so do you think that for a home, if they have a one inch filter, they should increase their slot to a four inch or five inch? You know, I, I, uh, I'm a professional mechanical engineer and a lot of the pushback from schools because I've been working mainly that's been my interest is to try to get the kids back and the teachers safely in the schools. So yeah, the, the, uh, that the pushback was, you know, you know, because we're saying, look, and MERV 13 filter is about 85% effective on airborne SARS-CoV-2. And you can put it in most air handlers if you have a two inch slot. So yeah. the pleated filters, as I think Glenn was saying, they become a commodity. They were invented, yeah. uh, um, you know, uh, back in the 50s for uh, controlling nuclear. Uh, nuclear stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're 90, they're 100% effective. And, and how do you distinguish yourself in the market? Because any, you know, anyone can make these HEPA filters and no patent on it. Um, and so, yes, I, I agree. Put in if uh, the, the problem with the residential, though, is that you're normally not running your HVAC fan all the time. Average about two hours, maybe a day for um, a lot of climate zones. Um, and then you could run it all the time, but that's an awfully big fan. So be prepared for the $200 a month electric bill, you know, yeah. on top of it. But you could put in a MERV 13 with a mm -hmm. low pressure drop, but you need at least a two inch slot. Yeah. Four inch okay. would be better. I mean, that also raises the question for a residential environment. Does it make more sense to be looking at portable type, you know, portable HEPA filtration units, putting them in the areas of, you know, longer uh, occupancy, like bedrooms, things like that? Or, you know, is that whole house filtration a reasonable approach? Uh, I think a combination of the two. Uh, for yeah, our in, in for, for the high-end clients, we have, you know, they got the bazillion dollar homes. I mean, they're going HEPA whole, you know, 
whole you know whole house filtration. But right, but you've you got right. static they, pressure. You've got a static pressure design on a mechanical system that's not typical residential system to be right. able to do yeah, that. So that, that is a uh, Bob. That's a good point. You know, you can do portables, and you know the other thing we haven't talked about here though is I know COVID nineteen is the big subject now, but out here in California we got wildfires, and yeah. that that's a tough act to balance for a school. Let's say you really don't want to bring any air in, right? Because of the wildfire smoke, but you do want to bring it in for the SARS-CoV-2. So it's a little bit of balancing act. Basically our recommendations are don't turn off the uh, outdoor air uh, in wildfire smoke, but keep it at a minimum. And your California wildfires, you know, I mean, that's kind of, you know, going to be a similar situation, you know, with the outdoor particulate levels to what they deal with in uh, places in Asia and, you know, in India. Uh, right. Where, you know, they, they have PM 2.5 counts that are just totally off the hook. And, you know, the out, adding outside air, you know, with the theory that it's fresh air, it's not. And it's not going to solve any problems. Yeah, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to turn it off. off. But most, um, I don't know if the audience knows, but uh, some of them will. Most air, most ventilation systems have economizers on them that can vary the amount of outdoor air, right, depending on the outdoor temperature. Well, uh, you want to have a kill switch. If you're in a wildfire smoke, you want to have a kill switch for that economizer so that it just stays in the minimum. But we do want to have some outside air coming into the building. Uh, but then you have a good filter too, a MERV 13 or better. What about a carbon filter? Yeah, carbon, you know, the, the carbon filters, um, um, it, it, you, you really, to, like where we have success with them, you know, airports, uh, sewage treatment plants where the outdoor air is clearly unacceptable. And, but then we're talking a two inch bed, right? Uh, activated charcoal. So the type of uh, carbon filters you see being sold are uh, oftentimes just uh, a little bit of dust impregnated on some right, fabric right. or whatever. Right. And, and at any rate, they're only a capacitor. Um, I don't know, Glenn, you can chime in, but it doesn't permanently remove it. It just kind of holds it up until it gets saturated and then it starts coming off again. Yeah. I, I think the, this activated carbon question is an, a, a good question, you know, not necessarily at the individual consumer level, but from a public health perspective, um, it is cost effective globally for us to deploy activated carbon as a way to remove ozone and ozone reaction products from buildings. Yep. If you look at the epidemiology and you go through all the details, it's, um, it is worth uh, improving indoor air quality with activated carbon as a sort of national benefit because it will reduce mortality and morbidity. And it's, it, it, it saved money basically on hospitalization. Yeah, one of the things that we use for when we deploy ionized hydrogen peroxide uh, for disinfection of room space uh, is that we have an AFD in that space with, a, with carbon cartridges and we scrub the room free uh, you know, down to uh, below one ppm, um, and before we allow for uh, occupancy. Yeah, so, you're going to scrub a lot of it with just your HEPA filter. The yeah, ozone. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you could put the carbon in, but uh, yeah. So, so our next next question, Jeffrey has one. Um, I don't see your camera on, but uh, Jeffrey, are you still with us? I wonder if I unmute myself. So we should be good. Um, really wasn't a question, was more like a, 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 an observation um, on that K to 12 and maybe to a lesser degree, um, the higher ed market is, I was privy to a uh, conversation, if you will, um, group chat, group meeting um, a couple of weeks ago in New York State. And I would say in, in, a, in a K to 12 atmosphere, not unsimilar to what we're looking at here, as you said, like the Brady Bunch. Um, the meeting went on for a couple hours, if not a little bit longer, and they had already had their pre-selected questions. And it was pretty much a question and answer type of thing rather than an info dump. So 80%, I would guess, um, at a minimal number was, or the questions were, okay, who's responsible, a.k.a., who can I sue if mm -hmm. my kid gets sick? Yep. Okay. It's as simple as that. Uh, and that followed up with customers that I've spoken with or end users that said, look, dude, I only got, 
I don't want to spend any money, but I got to open up because I don't want to seem negligent. I'll just wait. Yeah, there. well, in, in San Francisco, uh, the mayor, London Breed, sued the school district for um, basically stalling on getting back to school. I mean, no one, I, I get it too. I, I, if I was a teacher in a school, I'd be nervous too, not with no vaccination. So, but there wasn't really any movement on to get back to schools until the lawsuit happened. And this was the mayor suing the school district. And then the very next day, they had a plan. <laughs> and we're starting school next week. Well, one of the things that one of the things that is always concerned from a contractor's point of view is that when you're installing anything, piece of equipment, what have you, uh, you're it, you have to sell it as a as a mitigation tool, and it's not necessarily going to you know never use the word sterilization, eradicate anything like that along those lines, um, because that's just going to get you in trouble and. You know, there are, even with vaccines, there's only a certain amount of efficacy per vaccine. They're not always perfect. And it's the same thing with applying a remedy to any situation. Uh, even if, you know, you, it's used as, it's going to make everybody feel better if we do this. Um, but in a lot of cases, I do, I, I do agree with Glenn, you know, adding chemicals or something to any room environment uh, the liability falls back on the person that's doing the application. Well, well and, clear, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is though, you know, people, the, you, you raised this earlier, Tom, you know, especially on the early stages of COVID when it was, you know, really, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of mass fear going on and people wanted to see something happening, especially in places like schools and public places. So, you know, I, I could see where there was a rush to like do something, spray something, blow something in here, you know, you know, bring some technology in to combat this deadly menace, you know, and, and are we always going to be open to that with this industry is, I mean, because the thing is we've, you know, we've had these conversations before. This is, this is the first worldwide big pandemic of this scale that we've had in our lifetimes, but there have been smaller pandemics and there have been issues and crises, you know, we always had the same discussion. I'll give you an example. Uh, We, I forget the name of the airline right now, Um, but they got, it was a third party labeled chemical that was an organosiling, quaternary immune. Um, same thing as you know any of the uh, uh, you know that puts the charge you know, charge particle on a surface, and once the uh, microorganism hits the surface, it impales a cell wall and 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 elect- basically electrocutes it um, on contact. Um, and it's a great product for what it's originally designed for. But they got uh, they went as far as to get emergency use authorization deploy this uh, in, and not only that, but they're using electrostatic sprayers to do it. Um, and mm-hmm. what is in the air after that? You know what I mean? It, you know, there to to me, unless the label is the law. So if you're deploying any chemical uh, to do disinfection, what have you, if it doesn't say approved for fogging, approved for uh, electrostatic spraying or anything on that label, you know, the liability for applying that goes back to the person doing the application. Sure. And, I mean, perifera. Yeah. I mean, it is, yeah. it, it really is it, the label. Well, and, yeah, but we, in all of your cities, you probably all have some kind of uh, product warning labels, you know, the low warnings that are warning known in the state of California. So for us, it's prop 65. So things are like, um, uh, reproductive toxicants or cancer-causing compounds, and your product either has it in it or creates it um, above a certain amount, you have to put that label on it. And like, for instance, the e-cigarette people, right? The most, I think one of the most popular uh, fluids for transporting the nicotine and flavorants is propylene glycol. And when you heat up propylene glycol, it breaks down and oxidizes and you start creating formaldehyde. And that's the last thing the e-cigarette people wanted to put on their label. Warning, you know, causes cancer. And um, so there are, there are laws out there. There's the federal trade commission. There is the uh, uh, labeling laws. Um, But it's, this thing all happened so quick. Right. So to get it right. I mean, but now we're seeing, you know, the quote unquote uh, 
you know, claims for misapplication of antimicrobial pesticide. Um, and the, you know, it's, it's, it's getting to the point where, uh, you know, have we done more harm than, than, than good? Um, and, you know, using, I mean, everybody was running out to, every, every contractor was out there running the Home Depot, buying electrostatic sprayers and, you know, spraying God knows what through them. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, to make a quick buck. And we saw this, you know, during, uh, you know, enterovirus uh, and uh, H1N1, the MRSA scare, we, you know, uh, you know, and uh, that's the whole thing is that, you know. But who's we... responsible for that? Don't, don't, don't the consumers, and when I say consumers, in this case, schools and, you know, like commercial or residential consumers, don't they kind of yeah. drive these actions by, you know, is chicken or egg situation. I mean, they, I know the exactly. contractors should are, know better, but they are at, you know, Bob, they are driving the need. And when there's a need, there's always snake oil that's going to be in our marketplace. It's a free market. Um, and the, the, the consumer, how much of the, how much of the liability goes on to the consumer because of the, because the consumer is not educated or doesn't take the time to educate themselves on what they're asking for. Yeah. Tony, you're going to be the next question, uh, but I just want to just direct this same question back to Glenn, too, um, because you know, with your uh, editorial back a few years ago in Indoor Air, um, you, you raised a lot of thoughts of how you can, you know, how can the industry educate people? And, and you were, you know, you were proposing, you know, really professionals that, that are in the know need to share with their sphere of influence, uh -huh. right? Uh, yeah, I was making the point really to educators, you know, it, my, my colleagues, uh, in the universities um, or otherwise, that we need to uh, to think more about these the getting these critical thinking skills into um, the classroom on a regular basis. We teach about theory. We teach about you know we even have labs. We talk about a lot of things, but we don't necessarily um, introduce critical thinking and uh, sort of healthy skepticism in that process of learning. Uh, because we think, of, oh, that's something they should learn outside the, this environment. But instead, it's it's something they're not getting. Um, and so, I, you know, in my classroom, I actually have students um, select devices, test claims, you know, give me a report, tell me whether their claims are met, tell me um, things like that. And with the, with the idea that maybe they will take this out there and continue to be have a healthy skepticism about uh, products about their own work and thinking inwardly, right? Am I doing a good job? Am I, yeah, and so, so yeah, sorry, I don't want to make it too long. So I, I've always said that too. I've been a consultant and a contractor for, gosh, uh, uh, 34 years now, which is hard to imagine. And, and that, was, that was always my mantra too. It's like always, just because we do something a certain way or this is the way everybody says to do it, critically take a look at what you're doing, your processes, right? Because every, everything that you're in indoor environmental aspects, right? If you're being contracted to be a consultant or a contractor, uh, you know, the bottom line is health, right? It's the occupant health. That's what's driving all this. That's all, you know, sure it's liability, but all these things go back to health. So if any part of your process that you're going to employ to deal with some menace, you know, has, you know, has some ramifications that, you know, adversely affect health, then I think you're doing it wrong. On. <laughs> clearly tony you're you're up next thanks bob and team this has been great just a quick question you hear the word hepa quite a bit and you know one are all hepas alike and then two you hear the words like hepa like or true hepa or light hepa or certified hepa registered hepa certified you hear all these different words and the prices vary quite a bit so just wanted to pose that question to maybe Bob and Glenn and, and uh, Bud and the team and see what their thoughts are. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll chime in. <laughs> there, definitely the word HEPA has been appropriated. Yeah. So um, a true HEPA will uh, be, uh, have a HEPA certification test, you know, 99.97%. But really what you want to uh, make, and, and Glenn, I'm, I'm reaching back to our conversation yesterday about ozone. The analogy here I'm gonna make is you, we were talking about you know 50 PPB uh, creation of ozone by an air cleaner, the, the standard. Uh, really what you wanna know is the emission rate, right? 
Yeah. About selling. Yeah. And the same thing here, uh, you know, it's not so you want to know the clean air delivery rate. Um, so which is the product of the air flowing through the device and its efficiency. So if it's a HEPA filter and you got 300 CFM going through the device, you have 300 CFM of air cleaning uh, power. And as a as an indoor uh, environmental engineer, that's what you want. That's what I need to 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 calculate for my client what kind of improvement they're going to get in the air. Not whether it's a HEPA or a near HEPA or whatever, but what is the clean air delivery rate? The ASHRAE MERV rating is really just an efficacy rating. Right. Um, but you can multiply the CFM through the device time its efficacy rating. And as I was saying for, you know, MERV 13 is about 85% uh, on airborne SARS-CoV-2. So uh, pretty good. And be able to put it into pretty much all... Uh, um, all, all equipment that has a two-inch slot of air. Well, I mean, there's another issue to raise here too with, with uh, you know, the certified HEPA filters. Um, almost all the equipment that you're seeing out, not, I shouldn't say almost all, but a good portion of the equipment you see out there's HEPA, HEPA vacuum cleaners, HEPA negative air machines, right. HEPA air filtration units, right. you know, right. certified, with certified HEPA filters now, mind you, okay, ones right. that actually would pass a DOP test. They're still not certifying the appliance. <laughs> They're certified, you know, even most of these certified filters still are, you know, not certifying that cabinet. So that AFD you have, just because you have a certified HEPA filter in it, doesn't mean that appliance is actually delivering HEPA. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, when we were working on big mold jobs where there's lots of AFDs involved, I mean, we want to see that certification very current on each AFD, right? Um, um, Tom, right? So, yeah, so... Right, because and by the certification, by that, are you saying that they're actually DOP testing the appliances? Yeah, you're mm -hmm. saying you're seeing that done in the U.S. Because I, other than the province of Ontario, I haven't seen too. Oh yeah, too many people well, doing that. Yeah, we insist that on it on all our projects. Uh, uh, and uh, if we get in there, there's an AFD with, uh, you know, without a current, you know, within a few months certification, actually tested, you know, because the filter fit into the into the device, uh, yeah, uh, then the job gets paused. Um, yeah, you're seeing that a lot more in healthcare jobs uh, or areas or facilities where there's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, specialty environments um, yeah. where that's, it, we're doing a, a HEPA test on AFDs or other types of, uh, you know, in some of our cases, uh, ULPA um, yeah. certification and, it may be necessary. And, and it's so, pretty simple to do now because you have all these inexpensive like, uh, Particle counters, or not? Well, that's not certifying it, though, Bud. Right? Unless, right. unless you're doing a particle generator no. and a photometer. No, you right. don't need. You don't. You just. You. You don't need any. You're of that saying laser. Problem. You're. You're okay with somebody spot checking with laser. Laser. Yes. Yeah. And because, that's what we've been doing too for like literally 30 years. We've used handheld laser counters in the field mm -hmm. and always looked at you know inlet outlet on the machine right. and you yeah. know we're thumbnailing. If it's about 90, you're getting about 99 percent reduction at 0.3. Yeah, you know, yeah you're, exactly, you're exactly. It's it's and, if, and in fact, that's exactly what the certifiers are doing too. They're not like challenging it with DOP uh, or anything like that. They're just using the ambient particles. There's you know a bazillion of them in the air. You just measure upstream and downstream. So yeah. So, I mean, back back to that original question I posed, and you know, in our our byline for this show, you know, I. You know, we you always hear that you know that snake oil thing. You know, but is it is is the issue technology or is the issue the people using the technology in the field or is it both? And what, what do you guys think? I mean, we still haven't answered that question. I'm not sure that I we th will. I think it falls back on the applicator, Bob, myself, uh, and you know, because at the end of the day, the people that are doing the application uh, are always going to be holding the cards. Um, because any manufacturer will, uh, I'll give you an instance, you know, going back to the chemical end of things where you have a common product that's out there today that claims, you know, uh, 24 hours of efficacy. Um, but they're very careful in their advertisement to say, you know, uh, for bacteria, they're, they're on the front end, they're claiming COVID, COVID, uh, deactivation, but on the back end or the of their, uh, advertisement, you know, uh, has efficacy for you know uh, bacteria up to 24 hours, and it's 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 kind of like a a bait and switch uh, thing to me. Uh, and um, you know, it, 
you know, just, it's just be careful folks. Uh, you know, it's research your products, research them well, ask an indoor air quality professional, uh, you know, of their opinion and maybe get a second opinion before you go and, and spend that atrocious amount of money installing anything. But um, I mean, that, yeah, but that raises the issue time, you know, ask a professional, but you know, what if the professional is either, you know, misguided or, you know, unscrupulous, you know, and I, your, mean, I don't think we're going to get out of that. Yeah. You know? I, 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 I firmly believe that we need to have government <laughs> step in a little bit here at the fed level and, or, or even at the state level um, and list uh, devices that are vetted out to be, you know, you know, Fraudulent. You know, and, and to call out the devices that, you know, aren't vetted out because the consumer, homeowner, school district, they don't know. And, and then they don't even know who to call. And, you know, some environmental person or whatever. And, and then they go on the website and they say, oh, well, it looks like it. Yeah, that, uh, that looks like a good, good thing to do. So um, I think it's a little bit of work to do. But that would be a very valuable resource to actually name names. These we approve. These we don't approve of. It, it was interesting. Well, uh, a couple of weeks back, David Krause and uh, Rich Corsi were on our show, and they both raised that same issue. It's like, you know, we, and I don't disagree with it. I, I think we actually need a heavier hand uh, on some of this stuff. Because in other countries, you know, in the EU, things are a little bit tight, tighter regulated. You know, you're, gonna see, you're not going to see these product issues. Well, you, that's that's a I don't know in in Europe because uh, we have uh, I have colleagues in Europe over there on a chemical end, you know they are not nearly as stringent on they don't have a registration process or what have you and they're not nearly as stringent on the, the uh, you know mis information or advertisement on, on the chemical end. And that's one of their frustrations. It's like, you guys have the EPA, um, you know, everything has to be registered as an antimicrobial pesticide or, or the process has to be registered uh, over in Europe. You know, we just don't have that consensus among all the countries to have one standard. And so that's a problem. Um, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, one of the things that I brought that was brought up to me is that can it be done through a third party nonprofit? You know, like good housekeeping has the seal of approval. Um, and, you know, could it be, you know, do we have to rely on government to do this? Um, and can it, like I said, can it be a third party nonprofit that the industry supports? Uh, I don't care who it is. I just need yeah. to be done. I'm yeah. fine with the government doing it. I'm fine with Good Housekeeping magazine doing it. Whatever. Uh, yeah, but you understand what I mean. You understand what I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it needs. It does need to happen. I think because the the problem is it's still it's it's crazy wild west buyer beware here now. Oh, um, right. So so we have time for one more question in our regular time segment. Uh, Margie, you're going to have the last question on the uh, show proper for today. All right. Thank you. This has been really informative. I'm a college educator. I teach uh, for Boston Architectural College, and I teach on materials and indoor environmental quality. And nice. the are already, thank you. The students are already pretty confused about all the resources <laughs> I give them and third-party certifications on building materials. I'm just asking what would be the best resource to share with them regarding ventilation and HEPA filtration and certifications on air filtration systems? Well, you know, the ASHRAE's got some guidance documents out that's pretty good. EPA has some doc guidance documents put out. Bob, I'm gonna send you MARWA's open letter, uh, the EPA guidance document, the ASHRAE guidance document. These all have good information and I, I'm glad you're, uh, you're getting the kids involved in, 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 in indoor air quality. I know Glenn's been doing labs where he actually has the his students you know test some of these air cleaners and stuff so it's great that uh we're educating the next uh the next group <laughs> absolutely there's a gentleman too out of harvard that wrote a book healthy buildings joe dr joe allen i don't know oh yeah he, yeah he yeah he's uh been pretty active on the covid front uh um so i've been following him yeah thank you very much 
Mm-hmm. Thanks. So we're we're at the top of the hour, and uh, so we're done with our uh, regular show per se. However, uh, the guests have agreed to stay on uh, for a little bit of overtime, which we do periodically here on the Healthy Indoor Show. So um, we're going to do that. We're going to ask that the studio audience now kills their uh, cameras. We're just going to uh, you can definitely pose questions in chat, and we'll try to entertain those. Thank you.